Today's reading from the Word of God comes from Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through 23, and John chapter 13, verses 31 through 38. Please follow along in your own Bibles on the screen behind me, or listen as I read the scriptures. Once again, that's Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through 23, and John chapter 13, verses 31 through 38. Following the reading, I invite you to respond in worship with the singing of the doxology. At that time, children are invited to join Kids Rock through the door on your right. Hear the word of the Lord. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And from the Gospel of John, when he was gone, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now. Where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, church. My name is Brenda. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm so glad to be worshiping with you this morning in person and on the live stream. Welcome. Um, one of the things that we like to do every week is just take a moment before we open the scripture and pause to take an assessment of how we're doing and invite the Holy Spirit to speak to us wherever we are on our journey this morning. So I want to invite you to do that. Just kind of take a moment, think about what you brought in the room this morning and what do you need to hear from God. And I'll open us with a word of prayer after a moment. Father, Son, and Spirit, we are so thankful for who you are. We're thankful for your word, which points us closer and closer to who you are as well. And we pray that as we study it, as we dive in this morning, we would experience you in new and profound ways, that you would teach us, that you would challenge us, you would convict us and change us, and that today would be another step toward our learning to be more and more like you. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when you got in, you were walked in, you should have gotten a postcard with some artwork on it. Special thank you to Ella Peters for her picture of grapes this morning to represent faithfulness. Let's give Ella a round of applause. I've been so, it's been so much fun for, to see all of these artists, young and old, create uh, artwork for our sermon series this summer. So if you see Ella, make sure and thank her for sharing her creativity with us and for choosing green grapes instead of red ones. They're green, right? Who's it? No, they're red. Oh, and for choosing red grapes. <laughs> I totally had in my head they were green. Who are, who are green grapes? Team green grapes. 
Yeah, I like green grapes and like freezing them. They're really good. Red grapes, people, you're wrong. Green grapes are better. Uh, well, we'll have both during Soul Food today, so everyone is welcome. Well, some of you know that one of my heroes is a social, social researcher named Brene Brown. And I met Brene once, and she was like, hi, I'm Brene. And I'm like, hi, I'm Bryn. And she was like, we basically have the same name. Let's be best friends. I added that last part. <laughs> she's, she's more my best friend than I'm her best friend, but I super like Brene Brown. And if you think that you like Brene Brown, like double it and then add some, and that's how much I like Brene Brown. And one of the things that I like about Brene Brown and her work is how she takes these kind of difficult, lofty human concepts like shame and vulnerability and courage and emotions, these difficult to understand things, and she explains them in an accessible way. Even kids can understand it. And there's one story that she tells about a time that her daughter Ellen, also my middle name is Ellen, so Brene and I are like basically best friends. So <laughs> Ellen came home from school and she closes the door behind her, and she was in third grade, and she just starts to sob. And this surprised me, and she was like, what happened today? What happened at school? And Ellen said, I had this really hard thing happen to me at school, and I told a few of my friends at recess, and by the time we got back to the classroom, everybody in the class knew. And everybody started pointing and laughing, and it caused such a scene that Miss Bauckham, the teacher, had to take some marbles out of the marble jar. Did anyone have one of these, a marble jar in elementary school? I had one of these in my classroom in elementary school. So if a class is misbehaving, they would get a marble, or if, if they're behaving, they would get a marble in the jar. And as soon as the marble jar gets filled, filled up, the class gets like a pizza party or an ice cream social or a movie or something like that. But if the class is misbehaving, then marbles get taken out of the jar. It's pretty simple. So Ellen's class learned this thing that happened to her, and they were misbehaving so badly that they lost marbles in the jar. And it was humiliating to Ellen. And Ellen is sharing this story with her mom, and she looks at Brene, and she says, my friends told everybody my secret. I am never trusting anyone ever again. And Brene's first thought was, yep, that's right. You never trust anyone but me ever again. That was her first thought. But her second thought was, how can I explain how to build trust to this child, to this third grader? So she said, Ellen, think about that marble jar in your classroom. Trust is kind of like a marble jar. And Ellen was like, what do you mean? And Brene said, every time you share something with a friend and they keep the secret, you can put an imaginary marble in their jar. And then they do another small thing that makes you feel loved and cared for. And they do small things over time, and they do thing after thing after thing, and eventually you know that this is a trustworthy person. You can share more of your life with that person. Does that make sense? And Ellen said, yeah, that, that totally makes sense. And then Brene said, do you have any marble jar friends? And Ellen said, yeah, totally. Hannah and Lorna are my marble jar friends. And Brene said, how do they earn marbles for you? Well, she said, well, Lorna, if I, if I go into the cafeteria and there's no seat for me at lunch, she scoots over and she gives me half a Heine seat. And Hannah was at my soccer game and she saw Oma and Opa, her grandparents, and she said, look, your Oma and Opa are over there. And it was really nice to me that she remembered Oma and Opa's names. And then Ellen asked Brene, do adults have marble jar friends? Do you have any marble jar friends? And Brene said, yeah, I, I do have a couple of marble jar friends. And, and, and Ellen said, well, what kind of things do they do? And Brene realized it was kind of the same thing. 
She thought back to that exact same soccer game and, and a time that her friend Eileen walked up to her parents and said, David, Diane, it's so good to see you. And it, it built trust that Eileen remembered Brene's parents' friends or parents' names. It's just those little things, those little things that build up over time, small marbles, one by one, that earn trust. Now, before Brene told Ellen this story, she had kind of assumed that trust is built in the big moments, in these big, grand gestures. And a lot of our society treats trust that way. But then Brene started to research the anatomy of trust. How is it built? And she started to look at these uh, interviews that she had with people as they talked about trust. And she realized it's built in the small moments, one little marble in the jar at a time. When people would describe trust, they would say, oh yeah, I totally trust my boss. She asked me about how my mom's chemotherapy is going. Or I trust my neighbor because if something's going on with my kid, I know that he'll always come over and help me figure it out. I trust this friend because she showed up at my sister's funeral. Another huge marble jar moment for people that came up again and again was, I trust him because he'll ask for help when he needs it. And here's something else that's interesting that she observed in the research as she looked at trust. Trust is built slowly, marble by marble, but it's lost very quickly. You can lose trust in an instant. Trust is a big word. A writer named Charles Feldman described trust like this. He said, trust is choosing to make something important to you vulnerable to the actions of someone else. Trust is choosing to make something important to you vulnerable to the actions of someone else. So when you think about that definition of trust, what would you say is important to you? Is it your story, your culture, an aspect of your personality, a struggle, a strength? And who do you trust with that thing? Feldman says that distrust is when what I have shared with you that is important to me isn't safe with you. Trust. The Bible has a different word for the same concept. In the Bible, it describes trust with the word faith. Faith. Now, when we think about the word faith, it's about our belief system. It's about a set of theological principles or our hope for the future. We say we have faith in Jesus. We are a faith community. In our day and age, faith is usually talked about as a religion. It's about having spiritual thoughts or beliefs or principles that we abide by. But in Jesus' day, faith was a relational word. It didn't have anything to do with what you did or didn't believe. It was all about who you trusted, who you were loyal to, what kind of person you could depend on. It was about who had a lot of marbles in their jar. So if we were to tweak Feldman's definition of trust, we could say that faith is choosing to make something important to you vulnerable to the actions of someone else. Well, this morning we are continuing in our sermon series on fruit of the spirit that we've been calling organic. And these, we've been kind of unpacking these aspects of who God is that the spirit cultivates in our lives. And so far this summer we've looked at love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Last week was goodness. And this week, we're going to talk about faithfulness. In the context of scripture, what does it look like to be faithful? It doesn't mean just believing all the right things. It's about being trustworthy, about being dependable. It's about loyalty. 
It's about sticking with God no matter what. So if you brought your Bibles, I'd invite you to open up to the Gospel of John, to the passage that Tina read for us a few minutes ago. And just keep your finger on it for a minute. We're going to talk a little bit about the context before we talk about this passage. Now, when we read the Bible, we are reading about a particular people who lived in a particular time in particular cultures and particular parts of the world. So if we want to understand scripture better, we have to dive in a little bit to what that culture and those times were like. And this, the society that Jesus lived in was a kind of culture called a dyadic culture. We live in the West. We live in a more individualistic culture. So when I'm making my choices and my life decisions, it's ultimately up to me. That's our attitude. Dyadic cultures are different from that. They are completely communal. So in a culture like that one, and there are still cultures like this all over the world today, in a culture that is dyadic, your community decided everything about your life and your calling. And your, your community was your group, your unit, the, the different groups that you belong to. So that could be your family group, your national identity, your religious group. You didn't get to have an individual opinion back then. You were part of a group. You represented the group, and the group made the calls. So if you lived back then, there were social rules and expectations for everyone, depending on your lineage, your wealth, your heritage, your titles, your gender. But no matter what your status was in that society and what role you were supposed to play, everyone knew that there was just one rule you couldn't break. Don't mess it up for the group. Don't mess anything up for the group. That's it. Follow the rules. Do what you're supposed to do. Stay in line. Play your part. That's all you have to do. And you won't have any trouble. Because if you do mess up, if you stand out in society for the wrong reasons, if you say the wrong thing, make a mistake, hurt someone, there will be consequences. And probably those consequences are going to happen in public. And those consequences aren't just going to happen for you. They're going to happen for the entire group that you are a part of because you aren't just you, remember? You are a group. You represent your entire society. So it would be a little bit like you are part of the Morneau family of Salem. And any individual action that you take isn't just Susan's action, your action. You represent the entire Morneau family of Salem. So you better be careful because you aren't just representing yourself. You're representing yourself and everyone who's associated with you, everyone that you know. So stay in your lane. Now, there obviously wasn't social media back then, but public shamings were rampant in that day if you didn't stay in line. If you did something to misrepresent your group, you could be punished, excluded, ostracized, shamed, persecuted, bullied, attacked by people outside of your group and by people inside of your group. Now, it sounds really brutal, but I was thinking about it this week, and it was kind of like a survival mechanism for them. It was just part of how they kept their society safe. Because if you caused too much of a ruckus, if there was a scandal associated with you, if you stood out, then you could be noticed by the wrong people, and your entire group could be killed by a neighboring group or by the current empire that is ruling your world. Society was keeping you in line so that you could stay alive. It was essential to everyone's survival that we all behave ourselves. People who behave themselves, people who kept the social rules and stayed in line, they were considered dependable, trustworthy, faithful. Everyone's vulnerability was on the line. So they had to trust one another to behave and to represent each other well. 
if a person in your group was unfaithful, if they were not dependable, if they were disloyal, untrustworthy, then your best chance of survival was to distance yourself from them entirely, to cancel them, to make sure that no one is associating you with that person who did that thing. There's this interesting moment in the Gospel of Matthew when Peter, uh, one of Jesus' disciples, is, is talking to him and he asks him a question. And he says, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? In other words, Jesus, where can I draw the line on faithfulness and faithlessness? Trustworthiness. When can I cut them off? And then Peter suggests a number. He says, up to seven times? Now, in that day, rabbis had a kind of three strikes you're outlaw rule and they would teach that you should forgive someone who hurts you three times but after that you had a free pass to cancel them they had been unfaithful to you they've been unfaithful to you too many times so you had a right to just write them off so peter's suggestion seven times is actually really generous jesus how about we take the typical number double it add one make it a nice godly number seven and call it a day up to seven times because I can be really forgiving. I can be really, really patient. But when can I consider someone's marble jar completely empty? It's an interesting question. And I'm seeing us ask it all over our world, too. We don't live in that kind of world. Most of us aren't at risk for death by ancient Roman Empire. But most of us have asked that kind of question, too, in one way or another in our relationships. Where do we draw the line? on how people treat us? Where do we draw the line on faithlessness? When does someone cross over from being a faithful friend or family member to being a faithless one? How many marbles do they get to lose before I can be done with them? Is it three marbles? Is it up to seven marbles? I was talking with my sister about this. She's a seminary professor, and she was writing her syllabus a few years ago. And she was thinking about kind of who to include on her syllabus when she's asking her students to read books. And there were all these thought leaders from different eras whose works that she would like to include, but she was torn on whether or not she should include their work in her syllabus and have her students read their books. These leaders had done amazing work in the life of the church and in theological thought and development, but sometimes they had a view that we frown on. Maybe they were anti-Semitic. Some of them owned slaves. Or they'd had a moral failing. They'd really hurt people that they loved. And so my sister was asking, like, even though they contributed a great deal to this field, should we still read their work? Or do those awful things about them, those things that they have believed or done or said, does that discount everything else that they've contributed to the world and to the church? Have they lost all of their marbles? It's an interesting question in our cancel culture. Now, of course, no one is perfect. No one's track record is completely clean, but at what point, at what point is something that you've done so unforgivable that our group will just cancel you and the rest of your contributions to the world with it? How many marbles does it take? And what happens in a culture where we are always one bad move, one bad tweet away from getting canceled? Where do we draw the line? Where do you? When do you decide to cancel someone in your own life? When do you write them off? When do you say it's just too much work? They've hurt you too many times to still be considered faithful to you. Are you like Peter? Is it a number of times that they can hurt you? One too many wounds? 
One too many bad comments, one too many slights? Or is it a certain kind of behavior that's just so bad that if they did that thing, you could never stay in relationship with them? Maybe it's their lack of boundaries. Maybe they're manipulative. Maybe they cheat on you. When can you cut them off? Now, there are countless internet articles right now. This kind of prevailing wisdom on the internet is to eliminate toxic people from your life. Social media influencers are tweeting things like, there's no better self-care than cutting off people who are toxic for you. If I cut you off, chances are you handed me the scissors. I don't know who needs to hear this, but if someone hurts your feelings, you are allowed to get rid of them. Cut them off silently. They know exactly what they did. There's even a WebMD page about identifying toxic people in your life. And WebMD defines a toxic person as anyone whose behavior adds negativity and upset to your life. The idea behind all of this is that you have no obligation to remain faithful to relationships, to stay loyal or dependable or trustworthy to people who have been unfaithful to you. That is how our society works. Now, of course, we would never do this, right? We're Christians. And Christians are an ocean of grace and embrace and understanding. We would never cut people off. We forgive, always. That's what Christians in our country are known for, right? Except sometimes. Christians in our country have actually perfected cancel culture. In the 1960s, the majority culture in the United States started to take some major turns. And as it did, lots of conservative Christians felt that their traditional cultural values were being torn out from under them. And it scared them. It threatened their place in the world, their way of life, maybe even their existence was in jeopardy. So they fought back. Leaders of the religious right argued a kind of Christian separatism in which they deemed all things in society that were evil. They, they labeled it the culture. And we have to separate that from what's holy in the world, the church. They named their enemies, liberal politicians, social justice activists, feminist professors, Abortion rights advocates, secularists, humanists, pornographers, atheists, Hollywood moguls, civil rights leaders, working moms, stay-at-home dads, faithless people, untrustworthy people, people who didn't fit into what we want our group to look like. In the 80s and 90s, church youth groups would have these book-burning parties. They would coordinate book burnings and music bonfires to purge the world of evil art. Televangelists, Christian leaders and activists, they could be found on cable news blaming their enemies for the moral decay of, of America. Christian leaders tried to shame any person or organization who didn't believe or behave appropriately so we could craft a society according to Christian values. But it's not just conservatives who do, who do this. Over the last 20 years, progressive Christians have also found their platforms, and the left has canceled the right just as quickly. All of us. All of us have been canceled by someone already. And there are people in our country, particularly here in New England, who would never trust those of us in this room just because we are the kind of people who would go to church. We are all canceled and cancelers. All of us. All of us have broken a rule somewhere. All of us have hurt people we love at least once. All of us. Are faithless to somebody. But Jesus, right? He shifts the narrative on that whole culture and on ours. Peter asks him how many times he could forgive someone before canceling them, considering them faithless. Is it seven times? And Jesus says, 
No, not seven times. 77 times. It's as if Jesus is saying there is no number. The number of marbles in the jar or out of it, it doesn't matter. Jesus isn't increasing the limit on forgiveness. He's saying there is no limit on forgiveness. The number isn't relevant because of its true forgiveness. We aren't keeping track anyway. Forgiveness, embrace, it doesn't depend on other people's faithfulness to us at all because we have all been faithless at one point or another and we have been offered unlimited forgiveness. Peter asks this question, how many wrongs is too many wrongs? And then something interesting happens. One night, Jesus gathers his disciples together. Peter's there with them. It's after sundown on Thursday during the Seder meal. The food has been passed. The bread has been dipped. Everyone has eaten their fill and drank their fill. And and Jesus and Peter have this interesting conversation. Peter asks him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus replies, where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. And Peter asks, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answers, really? Will you really lay down your life for me? Because before the rooster crows, you're going to disown me three times. Three times. The number that the rabbis taught a person could sin against someone else and then that other person could be rightly done with them. Peter would prove himself untrustworthy, faithless to Jesus. And Peter hears this from Jesus and and he doesn't believe it. Absolutely not. For three years, Peter had walked with Jesus in life and ministry. He had been Jesus' faithful number two. He's watched as Jesus has performed miracle after miracle. He saw Jesus appear in glory. He saw Jesus walk on water. He even got out of the boat to walk with Jesus too. When Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? Peter was the first one to speak up and say, you are the Christ. And when Jesus predicted that all of the disciples would turn away, Peter declared that he never would. Even if everyone else falls away on account of you, I never will. I have what it takes. I will be the faithful one. Peter, big, bombastic, bull-in-a-china-shop Peter. He vows to be the rock that Jesus wanted him to be. I will be dependable. I will be steady. I will be strong. Even if he has to die, he promises nothing will separate him from his Lord. But Jesus says, no, Peter, you, you personally are going to deny me three times. Jesus is telling Peter, your sin will be serious enough that I could rightly be done with you. You are about to lose your final marbles. But Peter, nope, pledges his allegiance. He promises with the best of intentions. He means every word. He'll be the loyal one. He'll be the rock. He'll be faithful to Jesus until the end. But the one time, the one time that Jesus needed his friend the most, Peter deserts him. He flees the scene. He denies ever knowing Jesus three times, just like Jesus said that he would. It was quite a leap from you are the Christ to I do not know this man. And Peter didn't even realize that he was doing it until the rooster crowed. And he ran away weeping because he finally realized what a slippery slope it had been to sell out his Lord. But the story doesn't end there. It doesn't end with Peter's faithlessness. And it doesn't end with ours. Because all of us, in some way or another, we are like Peter. We swear that we can be faithful. We can be faithful to the end, but none of us can be. None of us is. And so Jesus goes to the cross. 
And he dies for all of the lost marbles. All the sins, all the shared secrets, all the betrayals and wounds and pain, for all the faithlessness of all the world. He dies for it. His forgiveness of us, it knows no bounds. And it is capped at no number. There is no limit to how faithful God is to a faithless people. And three days later, Jesus raises again, and he goes after Peter. And he does something interesting. He invites him to declare three times that he will care for God's people. Three. The number of times that Peter denied knowing Jesus that night, he restores all the marbles in the jar. It's like Jesus is saying, I know you think you've screwed this whole thing up, I know you think you've blown this up beyond repair, but I once said that you would become the kind of rock that I could build my church on, and that is what you are. I will be faithful to the world through you. And when Peter repents, Jesus redeems. And this faithless, disloyal disciple, he becomes the backbone of the early church. Our church community in our history, is literally built on a faithless people whose only hope is on a faithful God. So it turns out that the fruit of faithfulness isn't about how much, how much we believe or what we believe or how faithful we can be to God at following through. Faithfulness is entirely up to Jesus and the Spirit's work alive in us. Jesus has been faithful to us and in us. And through us. It turns out that no one, no one is outside of God's grace. Not even Peter. Not even you. Not even me. No matter how many marbles we lose, God will always embrace us. Always love us. Always stay faithful to us. And a commitment to this, a commitment to this kind of God can only lead us to a radically different way of dealing with those who have been faithless to us who've been untrustworthy and undependable in our lives. It means that there is no more place to demonize them because we have all shown ourselves to be faithless in one way or another. And we all stand under the same cross and the same declaration of forgiveness. It means that the exact moment when we become most disappointed with people for their failures, for their faithlessness, when we struggle with real wounds from real people, that those can become the exact moments when we give thanks to God for the power of the cross and the empty tomb that is offered for them and for us. It means that in the exact moment, we can cling all the more to Jesus because sin in the world, whether it's our own or someone else's, sin makes it so apparent how much we need Jesus. And it means that we can respond to those who have been faithless to us, not with self-righteousness, not with anger, not with fear, but with the same grace and compassion that Jesus shows to us on the cross. It means I can go straight into the heart of those wounds and declare God's grace for them because I have firsthand experience with God's grace. Now, I do want to mention, as an aside, if you are struggling with real wounds from real people, real lost marbles, and you're not sure what to do with your jar, please hear me. Those feelings are real, and they matter. And just because Jesus promises grace and forgiveness and freedom for everyone, it does not mean, it does not mean that we have to let everyone who's hurt us stay in our lives in the same way that they were in our lives before. There are those painful moments 
this side of eternity where there are people that we can love and people that we can forgive and hope the best for and pray for their healing and work toward seeing them as worthy of God's love. There are those moments when we have those people in our lives and God might not call us to reconcile with them in this life. Sometimes churches have taken biblical passages about forgiveness or reconciliation to an extreme, saying that you have to reconcile with people who have hurt you or who feel unsafe to you or who insist on abusing you. Sometimes we develop this belief that loving someone unconditionally or forgiving someone also means letting them hurt us over and over again. That's not a biblical view. In Christ, everyone, everyone can be made whole. That invitation is available to everyone. But not everyone chooses to follow Christ and respond to that invitation. Not everyone allows the Spirit to change them and heal them and work in them. Sometimes people continue to choose sin and pain and wounding others. As Christians, our invitation is to love and to forgive, but it's not to stick around for their abusive and hurtful behavior if they insist on it. Because sometimes what we're doing instead when we do that is we're enabling behavior that pushes that person further and further away and us further and further away from being the people that God intends us all to be. Because when I'm hurting you, then that does something to my own soul too. It continues to wound me. So sometimes loving someone fully means refusing to accept or excuse their hurtful behavior. Sometimes it means refusing to take it or to say that it's okay. Jesus didn't brush off Peter's behavior He didn't say it was all okay. Jesus is always full of grace, and he's always full of truth. And he named Peter's hurtful actions to him. They had a hard conversation. And sometimes the most loving thing that you can do is to set hard boundaries, to hold people accountable, and if they continue to show themselves faithless to you, maybe even to walk away. Because sticking around while they continue in destructive patterns is not only harmful to you, it's also harmful to them. So just continuing to fully embrace someone who's hurt you or who has abused you, that is not the biblical view. But what does it look like to be faithful to them, to demonstrate God's faithfulness to them, even as they continue to be faithless? How can you show them God's trustworthiness, God's safety, God's dependability, God's loyalty, even for people who have not been that for you? Maybe it means refusing to condemn them, Maybe it means refusing to disparage them when they aren't present. Maybe it means actively praying for them, hoping for them, asking God for healing for them, even if you need to remain at a distance while they learn. Maybe it means embracing reconciliation if they are open to it. And if you're not sure about what that looks like or or where those lines are, please come talk with me or one of our other pastors. We would love to help you navigate that. Relationships are hard. And there's no equation that I can just give you that says this is when you do it and this is when you don't. So let's talk about it together. That's for those of us, or those who have lost faith with us, but there is also an invitation to develop faith, to develop trust with God and with other people. When someone shows you the kindness of God, take notice of it. It's a marble in the jar. When someone embraces you, empathizes with you, when they don't condemn you for their, your shortcomings, when they forgive you, those are all marbles in the jar that develop faithfulness and trust in the Christian church over time. And it's interesting, as Christians, we always tell each other, have faith, just trust God. But for most of us, learning to trust God is just like learning to trust humans. It's marble by marble. 
So every time you see a moment of healing in the world, every time one of your prayers gets answered, every time you can sense God's real presence in your life, God's compassion, God's embrace, God's love, those are marbles in God's jar. Let God fill this jar with marbles, little by little, as you learn to trust more fully that God's promises are true. And when we live in this way, our hope is that we can be a community that will let faithfulness grow among us as a practice, not because we have done anything to be faithful, but because God has been faithful to us. And because when we start to follow him, we will start to look like him. And we will become people who are faithful to others because he's been faithful to us, marble after marble after marble. Well, like Pastor Ethan mentioned, we are going to do a baptism today. But we are first going to be able to hear Peter's life story. We're baptizing another Peter today. Uh, Peter Wood shares a name with this morning's disciple. Just like Simon Peter, Peter has experienced Christ's faithfulness in abundance in his own life. But for Peter, and he'll share about this, it hasn't been some big Damascus Road moment. It's been through the steady, quiet faithfulness of God. Through a series of marbles in a jar that have convinced Peter over time about the trustworthiness and faithfulness of our God. So I'd like to invite Peter up to share about God's faithfulness to him. Let's welcome Peter. Good morning. Some of you may know that I'm a bit of a Star Trek fan. Fans of Trek are probably familiar with the traditional background hum of a starship. There's something comforting about it. It's always there, thrumming low and soft with the occasional chirp, letting you know that the engines are working and you're being carried forward to your next mission. You feel safe on the ship and trust that it will take you where you need to go. People find these sounds so comforting, in fact, that there are numerous eight-hour-long videos on YouTube of background noise from Star Trek episodes that people can listen to while they're sleeping. So check it out, it's true. For me, Jesus' presence in my life has carried that same reassuring feeling. I'm not saying that Jesus is like a starship. In, inevitably, in Star Trek episodes, the ship eventually breaks down, control panels explode in your face, the warp core threatens to breach, you set the self-destruct sequence, and it's up to the crew's ingenuity to get themselves out of the situation before the ship explodes. What I am saying is that Jesus' presence in my life has been like that comforting hum of the ship's engines, something that's always been there as my life has moved from one phase to the next, comforting me, reminding me that I am cared for. My journey with Christ began before I was born. My parents both have had a lifelong devotion to him and a tradition of service to the church, which they have passed on to me. I grew up attending church with my parents, at times even multiple churches, as they attended one church and worked side jobs playing or directing music at other churches. Some of my earliest memories involve being up in a childcare room in the back of the uh, Navy Chapel in San Diego with stairs that led up to the organ loft where my mother played the organ while my father led the music. I came along to all of it and grew up surrounded by both a family and a community of believers who supported me in my growth and in my relationship with Christ. Growing up, I was involved in many ways with our church. 
children's church, Sunday school, Bible quizzing, youth group and youth events, church camps, and mission trips. It was at one of those church camps that I prayed for Jesus to live in my heart. And though he had been with me since the beginning, I felt a renewed presence, which has continued to this day. That presence continued with me through my attendance at Gordon College, where I lived and studied with a diverse group of believers. Interacting with my fellow students and the professors at Gordon gave me a greater appreciation of the variety of experiences people could have in their walk with Christ. God's presence has continued with me after college and through many of the ups and downs of adult life. He led me to meet my wife, Rebecca, watched over us through the birth of our daughters, Catherine and Esme, and protected and healed Catherine when she was very ill as a newborn. He has been with us as our girls have grown up, provided for us during a summer when we didn't have a house of our own, helped us safely navigate our family travels, and kept us connected with church communities as we moved through life's changes. It is perhaps because of this constant lifelong presence that I haven't been baptized before now. Infant baptism wasn't practiced in the church my parents were attending when I was born. Growing up, the topic of baptism wasn't a main focus of my spiritual life. Later on, I never quite reached a point where I felt that it was necessary to provide such a public expression of faith. I simply lived with Jesus and felt his presence with me. Throughout my adult life, I have been presented with several opportunities for baptism. At each point, I didn't strongly feel called to move forward. However, after the pandemic and going through the changes in our church community, I've again been reminded of God's faithfulness. With encouragement from Bren, I am feeling led to share my faith with the church, not just through my service and participation in the community, but through baptism as a public symbol. I hope that my baptism today will provide a breath of fresh air to my own faith and be an encouragement to others who are on their own faith journeys.